0: This week we're leaping ahead to Ezekiel chapter 37, uh, flying over uh, lots of it to to land uh, with a theme that we can pick up for harvest and then we'll backfill some of the other things that we've missed along the way over these forthcoming weeks as we think about uh, uh, all that God was doing through Ezekiel. Breath, harvest, uh, a, a reminder not only as uh, heather was leading out for us earlier uh, about how we need to say thank you uh, and that that sort of reveals a, a deeper need that we've got we say thank you because we recognize that we are utterly dependent upon god for everything that's what it's about that's why they brought the harvest which was the first fruits. Imagine being in an environment where you needed the crops in order for your family to survive, and when the first crops were harvested in, you took them as an offering. You still did not know whether the full harvest would materialize. You still did not know whether you were safe, yet you would offer the first fruits as an utter reminder that you are totally dependent upon God for everything. Tesco's does not sustain us, or Aldi, or Lidl, or Morrisons, or Waitrose, or Sains, I think I've covered everything now, the, the top end and the bottom end, and all those somewhere in uh, the middle, the co-op, don't forget the co-op, or the spa. But they do not, in the end, sustain us. Neither does the health service sustain us. Neither does your ability to have a job, to stay employed, to do a day's work, neither does that sustain us. In the end, it is the sovereign God alone who sustains us, who brings the seasons, the wind and the rain, the sunshine, who in the end is the one who gives us life. Let's jump right in then to verse uh, one. And uh, pick it up there. Have your Bibles open in front of you. That would be really, really cool. And uh, put that back to a proper person's height. Thank you, Margaret, for doing the reading so well. The hand of the Lord, verse 1, was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. First thing to note, the word spirit, the spirit of the Lord, is a word ruach in Hebrew, R U A C H. And this word appears ten times in these fourteen verses. Somebody somewhere is trying to get Our attention 10 times in 14 verses, and in the NIV, we don't notice it as clearly because the word is so rich in meaning that it gets translated in different ways depending on which meaning seems to be at the forefront of the author's mind. That's the problem with English, that's why Hebrew is so rich because there are nuances everywhere. So in verse 1, it's translated spirit, in verse 5, the same word is translated breath, in verse 9, the same word is translated wind there is a strong sense always in Hebrews I'm saying this but don't forget I'm also talking about this, this and this I'm talking about the Spirit of God but never forget it's also the breath of God and it moves like a powerful wind I'm talking about the way the wind comes and changes everything but don't forget that's the breath of God His very Spirit also And so everywhere you look, and we see it in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, we see it especially. He's like talking about this, but it's a nod and a wink to something else. And you see that, and we'll come back to it towards the end, how this word, it's talking about one thing and giving a nod and a wink to something else all at the same time. And that's so often the way prophecy works. This whole passage works like that. It's talking very specifically about how God will bring back his people from exile, from Ishtar's house, from the enemy camp. How God will bring back his people who are as good as dead, dry bones, in order that they might live again. That's what physically, literally, historically the context is. But as you read those verses, there are nods and winks to all kinds of other truths that are true about God. Turn for a moment to your neighbour and just think what other themes the Holy Spirit might be giving a nod and a wink to whilst it talks about this particular historical context. Go. And if you don't want to do that because you'd rather not, then you can be the person that goes and gets me a glass of water and you'll feel like you've done a good service, but sneakily you'll have got out of the conversation. The rest of you go. Ah, see Jane was first off the blocks. Now the rest of you have got to talk to one another. Off you go. Thank you very much. Okie okay, doke. So it's talking about a historical context. It's talking about the people of, uh, of Israel at a particular time and place and how they're as good as dead in a foreign land. God's going to raise them up and bring them back. What, what are the other nods and winks that could be going on in this passage? Yes, over there. Nancy. Okay, yeah, he's going to rebuild, rebuild them into a, into a fully functioning body. Yep, something else? You've got to have all the bits, all the bits yeah. Um, there's a hand waving over there, Helen. Helen. Absolutely, that's a really strong nod and wink that Jesus refers to in his life. That uh uh the the irony of these verses is that uh, uh you can you can be alive, you can have breath in you, but not have uh the Spirit of God. It's a, a nod and a wink to resurrection. It's a nod and a wink to one day when dry bones, yours and mine, will come up out of the grave and live again. Hallelujah. I was nervous then whether I'd even get one of those for that. And that's as good as it gets, everybody. Um, uh, It's a nod and a wink to the resurrection of, of Jesus and so on and so forth. So I want you to remember, as you're reading a prophecy in particular that's addressing a particular context, it's so often wanting to say so much more. And this is certainly the case here, that we are dead without the Spirit. There's nuances of resurrection. There's a very strong theme of the resurrection at the end that will come. Verse 1. Verse 2, we're still there. And the bones, it says, are very dry in this valley. And I saw great and many bones that were very dry. This is Death Valley. The picture is the aftermath after a tragedy. Typically, Uh, 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 armies would fight in a valley and many people would be killed and their bodies would just be left strewn all over the valley. Think of a modern day tragedy, a tidal wave when bodies are are washed, lifeless and piled up uh, in the street or a genocide when perhaps a a grave or not even a grave is uncovered and there's piles of bones. It's this kind of horrific scene Uh, and not only are the bones there, they are very dry. In other words, they are very dead, if you can be more than dead. These bones are very dead. And uh, they've been left open to the heat of the sun and to the birds of prey that have scavenged away. And there's now a valley of bones. A horrific image of hopelessness and devastation. And verse 3, God asks a penetrating question to a situation that seems hopeless and overwhelming. Son of man, can these bones live? Let me tell you why it's such a penetrating question. It's a penetrating question because Ezekiel knows in his head what the right answer is. He knows that the sovereign God can make dead bones live. So he he instinctively in his head wants to say yes, but his heart would answer something different. His heart, if he's like us, would probably say, I think that's quite unlikely, Sovereign Lord. A penetrating question when your head and your heart give different answers. And Ezekiel was exposed by the question, wasn't he? And you can see that he's exposed because he, he, he tries to dodge um, the question. Oh, Sovereign Lord, and there's a clue in it, Sovereign Lord, you only know. That's a jolly good question. Surely you know the answer to that. And that's uh, the, the most obvious rhetorical skill, is it not, to uh, return a question for a question you haven't got a clue how to answer without being exposed. Uh, what's going on here? Ezekiel is effectively saying, well I, well I know theoretically, intellectually, that it is possible for God to recover this hopeless situation, but to be really honest in my heart, I think that's quite unlikely. Does that ring any truth with you? Have you ever been faced with a situation and a question and in your head you know what the right answer is, but in your heart you, you instinctively want to say something different. I know that I should see the sovereign God at work in my work, in my business, in my, in my career life, but actually in my heart I don't expect to see much of God there because it's quite a pagan, secular, ungodly kind of And so our head says one thing and our our heart says something else. I, I know I should trust God for this situation that seems overwhelming. I know God can do this, but actually I'm not sure I really believe that he will, in this situation, in this moment, pull through for me. I would suggest that we've all been where Ezekiel is right now. And what happens next is really interesting, verse 4. You see, when we when we know what the right answer is with our heads, but our hearts betray us, we feel something different to what we know is the truth, how does God respond? You ready? Verse 4, God says, I will prove to you that what you are thinking in your head but don't yet believe in your heart is right by you getting involved in the situation. God says to Ezekiel, I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you that your, what you say in your head is true even though your heart betrays you by asking you to get involved in the situation. Now, If I was Ezekiel, I would want to watch and let God prove it to me while I sat back with my arms folded. Okay then, Lord, if you are the sovereign Lord, then I'm going to watch while you show me that these dry bones can live. And God says, no, you, Ezekiel, you prophesy. You do something that will show you that what you know in your head but don't yet believe in your heart is actually The truth. It's only as we get involved that what we know in our heads becomes a reality in our hearts. That's really important. We can spend all of our Christian lives knowing stuff in our heads that never gets to our hearts because we do not get involved. Does that make sense? God was not prepared to let Ezekiel watch while he on his own made that connection. What God did to Ezekiel, he does for us. He invites us to get involved so that we can make the connection between our heads and our hearts. And and we see that everywhere, I think, in in our situations, in our circumstances. We know in our heads that our friends should come to faith through our lives but we feel in our hearts that that's quite unlikely. Anyone know what I'm talking about? And so we have this head and heart. The question, can people come to faith through our friendship, exposes us. Because we know it in our heads and we're not sure we can believe it in our hearts. We know in our heads that if we build extended family, then if the Bible is true, then people will begin to find faith. But to be honest, it's hard to believe that in our hearts. So, I, I don't know in terms of a time frame... But, but, but there, there, there was a, a series in this journey that we've been on where I understood very clearly what I thought God was saying. And I understood very clearly some things in God's Word that perhaps were, were, were being given fresh revelation to me and to us about building extended family and stuff. But did I know, was I certain in my heart that all this stuff works? Was I hack? No. But as we begin to get involved... As we begin to build extended family, as we begin to step out in mission, as we begin to take those people of peace and our friendship seriously, uh, what we know should be true in our heads, slowly becomes true in our hearts. Uh, And so now, a little bit further along the journey, we're in our missional family, the ministry team and our families, we've begun to see people come to faith within that context. Uh, My heart's engaged. Does that make sense? So I can believe it in my heart but only because we started to get involved and other missional communities are, are, are sharing that same journey people are coming to faith and we can believe it in our hearts what a, at one point we thought well this makes sense intellectually we can hear what god is saying but there is a disconnect between head and heart and it's about getting involved how is god asking you to get involved where there is a disconnect for you and that could be the disconnect could be in all kinds of spheres of life struggling with a health issue, struggling with a relationship, struggling with a work issue, struggling uh, here, there and everywhere, uh, and, uh, and your head tells you God will pull through. But your heart says, I'm not quite sure I really believe that. And what that tends to do for us is that we sit back very passively uh, because our hearts are not engaged. It's really hard to do something when your heart's not engaged, isn't it? You go, I don't feel like doing it because my heart's not in it. And so it, it's hard to engage when our hearts are not in it. But Ezekiel here is being asked to engage when his heart is not in that place yet. Ezekiel, you're not sure. You've dodged the question. But you get up off your feet and you start speaking to these dry bones, says the sovereign Lord. And God kind of says, so let's see what happens then. And that's how this uh, uh, chapter begins to unfold. Uh, and as we go on reading verses, uh, five through eight, someone's pinched my Bible. Here we go. Notice in verses five through to eight, the recurrence of this word, breath. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, verse 5, to these bones. I'll make breath enter you and you will come to life. I'll attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I'll put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. But they had no breath. Breath is what's drawing our attention in these verses. Can you see it could have been written another way? It could have been written, but there was no heartbeat. There was no blood pumping through their veins. There, was no, there could have been other language, other metaphors that were used. But the writer is using this word breath, which also means spirit, which can mean a behavior like a powerful wind. Breath. God's breath was not yet in them without breath we are nothing. Breath is make, makes you what you are and who you are this morning. Without breath, we are dust. From dust you came, and to dust you will return. It's breath that makes everything uh, live. Verse 9, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these dust, effectively, that they may live. Remember all the nuances. Spirit of God, breathe life into these bones. Whose breath is getting breathed in to these bones? God's breath. God breathed. And we carry God's breath, the Spirit of God. And we're not surprised at that, are we? Because in Genesis we read that we were made from dust. God scoops down, gathers up some dust, and he breathes his life into us. You are a pile of dust with God's breath. Turn to the person next to you and say, You are a pile of dust and the breath of God. And turn in such a way that your eyes meet and say, And you look amazing. Okie doke. On your feet, everybody. Let's stand together. Stand upright. Stand straight. And for a a few moments, as you stand as, as comfortably as you can, I want you to concentrate on your breathing, on your breath. You may now be wishing that the person next to you had a chewing gum or a breath freshener. But concentrate in these moments on your breath. I want to ask you, where did that breath come from? Where, where did that breath in and out come from? You see, every breath, is a reminder that God is sovereign. Every breath. Every breath, a reminder that without that breath, we're just dust. Every breath, a testimony to a Creator God. Every breath, the assurance that God is, and that God will be. And sometimes we cry out, where is God in this mess, and in my pain, and, and how do I know that He's there, and how do I know that He's real, and, uh, and what is the meaning of this life anyway, and how can I find purpose to it? How do I know my life matters? Breathe in. Breathe out. The Sovereign God has placed a sign right under your nose that He is closer than your closest breath, that He is nearer than the mist you create in the bathroom mirror. Imagine for a moment that you've run and done something energetic. I know that's a stretch for some of you. And, uh, and you push your body to its limit and you're gasping now for breath and you're out of breath. It's hard to gasp to, to you ache, your limbs are aching, your lungs are gasping, there's fatigue in your muscles. You, you know that you have to breathe. And it's a reminder the whole of your body in that moment screaming out your total dependence on him. You need that breath. You need every breath. You're utterly dependent on him. Breathe in. Breathe out. And maybe this morning you've never acknowledged that your life is utterly in God's hands. That your life is a total gift from Him. Breathe in. Breathe out. It's the everyday sign in the everyday moment. That he's sovereign. That he's sovereign. You may like to sit down for a moment. Uh, And when we get to verse 12, that the metaphor is given some specific unpacking, some specific context. The dry bones were God's people. And look how the scene changes. Uh, here in verse 12, God's people are being described as being in a grave. If you're in a grave, what are you? Dead. God's people are being described as dead. It's not that they were physically dead, they had the breath. But they, uh, were, were in a foreign land, they'd lost their way, they'd lost sight of God's presence, they'd lost sight of what he could do in their lives. As the people of God, they were dead. You can be a Christian and still have a grave that you need to come up out of. You can be a Christian and still be dead. Harvest the celebration of God who creates a world that bursts into life. Every fruit grows and reproduces. That's the whole point. Everything blossoms and blooms. If we are not growing and reproducing, if we're not blossoming and blooming, we are dead. Jesus says, you're dead apart from me. And if you're not bearing any fruit, you're like a dead branch. And you might just as well be cut off as Christians. Just like these people, there are graves that we have to come up out of? How do I know if I'm in a grave? Is my life bearing fruit? That's the question Jesus gave to help us understand whether we are still in a grave or not. But dead people can live. Hallelujah. Verse 13 and 14. Read how it goes on. Then you, my people, will know that I'm the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will do what? I will put my I will put my breath, my spirit in you, and you will live. This is where the nuances get lost on us, but it's totally brilliant because it's a mega play on words. Uh, God is saying, I'll put my breath in you, I'll put my spirit in you. In other words, if you've got my breath but haven't got my spirit, you're as good as those dead corpses. To be physically alive with physical breath, but not to have the spiritual life pumping through your veins and the whole of your body. You are like very dry, dead bones, God is saying through Ezekiel. So much more to being alive than being alive. So much more than physically breathing. That's why at the end of his ministry, as he was going up into heaven, we read that Jesus breathed on them. The breath of God. And he said, receive my breath. Yes, receive my spirit. To have physical breath is not enough. Are we living as if we can do it all for God? On physical breath. Because if we're in that place. The Lord said to Ezekiel that day. You still like those dry bones. That needed something much more than physical breath. They needed the ruach of God. The breath of God. And the life giving spirit of God. To touch their lives. You see, we need a breath that brings energy to our physical bodies, but we need the breath of God that brings life to our emotions, to our spirit, to our soul, to our mind, to our thoughts, to every area of our lives. Because we are so much more than just dust. We are dust and the breath or the spirit of God do you want the breath of God for all of you or for just your body that's the question can these dry bones can these dry bones can they live well I think so but I'm not always sure so so what do I do I get involved I say, Spirit of God, I I maybe got this disconnect in my head and my heart, but I'm going to get involved, your word says, to be filled with your Spirit. So I'm going to offer myself to be filled with the Spirit even though my heart is not yet fully engaged because my heart will never be engaged for as long as I think something in my head and feel something different in my heart. Question number one. Where do you need to step in, to get involved, so that your heart can catch up with what your head already knows is true? Where do you need to get involved? And have you caught your breath today and acknowledged that every moment you are totally and utterly dependent on a sovereign God? And are you trying to live on physical breath, alone?